If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 39 and 40 of A Journey to the Centre of the Earth by Jules Verne. In the last chapter, our adventurers had come to an impasse in a cave passage. In tonight's story, they set the charge ready to explode their way through. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 39 The Explosion and Its Results The next day, which was the 27th of August, was a date celebrated in our wondrous subterranean journey. I never think of it, even now, but I shudder with horror. My heart beats wildly at the very memory of that awful day. From this time forward, our reason, our judgment, our human ingenuity have nothing to do with the course of events. We are about to become the plaything of the great phenomena of the earth. At six o'clock, we were all up and ready. The dreaded moment was arriving when we were about to seek an opening into the interior of the earth by means of gunpowder. What would be the consequences of breaking through the crust of the earth? I begged that it might be my duty to set fire to the mine. I looked upon it as an honour. This task once performed, I could rejoin my friends upon the raft which had not been unloaded. As soon as we were all ready, we were to sail away to some distance 
to avoid the consequences of the explosion, the effects of which were certainly not to be concentrated on the interior of the earth. The slow match we calculated to burn for about ten minutes, more or less, before it reached the chamber in which the great body of gunpowder was confined. I should therefore have plenty of time to reach the raft and put off to a safe distance. I prepared to execute my self-allotted task, not, it must be confessed, without considerable emotion. My uncle and the hunter-guide embarked on board the raft while I remained alone upon the desolate shore. I was provided with a lantern which was to enable me to set fire to the wick of the infernal machine. Go, my boy, said my uncle, and heaven be with you, but come back as soon as you can. I shall be all impatience. Be easy on that matter, I replied. There is no fear of my delaying on the road. Having said this, I advanced towards the opening of the sombre gallery. My heart was beating wildly. I opened my lantern and seized the extremity of the wick. The professor, who was looking on, held his chronometer in his hand. Are you ready? cried he. Quite ready. Well then, fire away. I hastened to put the light to the wick, which crackled and sparkled, hissing and spitting like a serpent. Then, running as fast as I could, I returned to the shore. Get on board, my lad, and you, Hans. Shove off, cried my uncle. By a vigorous application of his pole, Hans sent us flying over the water. The raft was quite twenty fathoms distance. It was a moment of palpitating interest, of deep anxiety. My uncle, the professor, never took his eyes off the chronometer. Only five minutes more, he said, in a low tone. Only four. Only three. My pulse went a hundred to a minute. I could hear my heart beating. Only two. One. Now then, mountains of granite crumble beneath the power of man. What happened after that? As to the terrific roar of the explosion, I do not think I heard it, but the form of the rocks completely changed in my eyes. They seemed to be drawn aside like a curtain. I saw a fathomless, a bottomless abyss, which yawned beneath the turgid waves. The sea, which seemed suddenly to have gone mad, then became one great mountainous mass, upon the top of which the raft rose perpendicularly. We were all thrown down in less than a second 
the light gave place to the most profound obscurity. Then I felt all solid support give way, not to my feet, but to the raft itself. I thought it was going boldly down a tremendous well. I tried to speak, to question my uncle. Nothing could be heard but the roaring of the mighty waves. We clung together in utter silence. Despite the awful darkness, despite the noise, the surprise, the emotion, I thoroughly understood what had happened. Beyond the rock which had been blown up, there existed a mighty abyss. The explosion had caused a kind of earthquake in this soil, broken by the fissures and rents. The gulf, thus suddenly thrown open, was about to swallow the inland sea, which, transformed into a mighty torrent, was dragging us with it. Only one idea filled my mind. We were utterly and completely lost. One hour, two hours, what more I cannot say, passed in this manner. We sat close together, elbow touching elbow, knee touching knee. We held one another's hand, not to be thrown off the raft. We were subject to the most violent shocks, whenever our sole dependence, a frail wooden raft, struck against the rocky sides of the channel. Fortunately for us, these concussions became less and less frequent, which made me fancy that the gallery was getting wider and wider. There could now be no doubt that we were now chanced upon the road once followed by Saknasem, but instead of going down in a proper manner, we had, through our own imprudence, drawn the whole sea out with us. These ideas presented themselves to my mind in a very vague and obscure manner. I felt rather than reasoned. I put my ideas together only confusedly, while spinning along like a man going down a waterfall. To judge by the air which, as it were, whipped my face, we must have been rushing at a perfectly lightning rate. To accept under these circumstances to light a torch was simply impossible. The last remains of our electric machine, our Rumkoff coil, had been destroyed during the fearful explosion. I was therefore very much confused to see at last a bright light shining close to me. The calm countenance of the guide seemed to gleam upon me. The clever and patient hunter had succeeded in lighting the lantern, and though, in the keen and thorough draught, the flame flickered and vacillated and was nearly put out, it served partially to dissipate the awful obscurity. The gallery into which we had entered 
was very wide. I was therefore quite right in that part of my conjecture. The insufficient light did not allow us to see both of the walls at the same time. The slope of the waters, which was carrying us away, was far greater than that of the most rapid river of America. The whole surface of the stream seemed to be composed of liquid arrows, darted forward with extreme violence and power. I can give no idea of the impression it made upon me. The raft, at times, caught in certain whirlpools and rushed forward, yet turned on itself all the time. How it did not upset, I shall never be able to understand. When it approached the sides of the gallery, I took care to throw upon them the light of the lantern, and I was able to judge the rapidity of motion by looking at the projecting masses of the rock, which as soon as seen were again invisible. So rapid was our progression that points of rock at a considerable distance one from the other appeared like portions of traverse lines which enclosed us in a kind of net like that of a line of telegraphic wires. I believe we were now going at a rate of no less than a hundred miles an hour. My uncle and I looked at one another with wild and haggard eyes. We clung convulsively to the stump of the mast, which, at the moment when the catastrophe took place, had snapped short off. We turned our backs as much as possible to the wind, in order not to be stifled by a rapidity of motion which no human could face and live. And still the long, monotonous hours went on. The situation did not change in the least, though a discovery I suddenly made seemed to complicate it very much. When we had slightly recovered our equilibrium, I proceeded to examine our cargo. I then made the unsatisfactory discovery that the greater part of it had utterly disappeared. I became alarmed and determined to discover what our resources were. My heart beat at the idea, but it was absolutely necessary to know on what we had to depend. With this view, I took the lantern and looked around. Of all our former collection of nautical and philosophical instruments, there remained only the chronometer and the compass. The ladders and ropes were reduced to a small piece of rope fastened to the stump of the mast. Not a pickaxe, not a crowbar, not a hammer, and, far worse than all, no food, not enough for one day. This discovery was a prelude to a certain and horrible death. Seated gloomily on the raft, clasping the stump of the mast mechanically, I thought of all I had read as to the sufferings from starvation. I remembered everything that history had taught me on the subject, 
and I shuddered at the remembrance of the agonies to be endured. Maddened at the prospects of enduring the miseries of starvation, I persuaded myself that I must be mistaken. I examined the cracks in the raft. I poked between the joints and the beams. I examined every possible hole and corner. The result was simply nothing. Our stock of provisions consisted of nothing but a piece of dry meat and some soaked and half-moldy biscuits. I gazed around me, scared and frightened. I could not understand the awful truth. And yet, of what consequence was it in regard to any new danger? Supposing that we had had provisions for months, and even for years, how could we ever get out of this awful abyss into which we were being hurled by the irresistible torrent we had let loose? Why should we torture ourselves about the sufferings and tortures to be endured from hunger when death stared us in the face under so many other, swifter, and perhaps more horrid forms? It was very doubtful, under the circumstances in which we were placed, if we should have time to die of starvation. But the human frame is singularly constituted. I know not how it was, but, from some singular hallucination of the mind, I forgot the real, serious, and immediate danger to which we were exposed. To think of the menaces of the future, which appeared before us in all their naked terror. Besides, after all, suggested Hope, perhaps we might finally escape the fury of the raging torrent, and once more revisit the glimpses of the moon on the surface of our beautiful Mother Earth. How was it to be done? I had not the remotest idea. Where were we to come out? No matter, so that we did. One chance in a thousand is always a chance, while death from hunger gave us not even the faintest glimpse of hope. It left to the imagination nothing but blank horror, without the faintest chance of escape. I had the greatest mind to reveal all to my uncle to explain to him the extraordinary and wretched position to which we were reduced, in order that, between the two, we might make a calculation as to the exact space of time which remained for us to live. It was, it appeared to me, the only thing to be done. But I had the courage to hold my tongue, to gnaw at my entrails like the Spartan boy. I wished to leave him all his coolness. At this moment, the light of the lantern slowly fell, and at last went out. The wick had wholly burnt to an end. The obscurity became absolute. It was no longer possible to see through the impenetrable darkness. There was one torch left, 
but it was impossible to keep it alight. Then, like a child, I shut my eyes that I might not see the darkness. After a great lapse of time, the rapidity of our journey increased. I could feel it by the rush of the air upon my face. The slope of the waters was excessive. I began to feel that we were no longer going down a slope. We were falling. I felt as one does in a dream, going down bodily, falling, falling, falling. I felt that the hands of my uncle and hands were vigorously clasping my arms. Suddenly, after a lapse of time scarcely appreciable, I felt something like a shock. The raft had not struck a hard body, but had been suddenly checked in its course. A water spout, a liquid column of water, fell upon us. I felt suffocated. I was being drowned. Still, the sudden inundation did not last. In a few seconds, I felt myself once more able to breathe. My uncle and Hans pressed my arms, and the raft carried all three of us away. Chapter 40 The Ape Giggins It is difficult for me to determine what was the real time, but I should suppose, by after calculation, that it must have been ten at night. I lay in a stupor, a half-dream, during which I saw visions of astounding character. Monsters of the deep were side by side with the mighty elephantine shepherd. Gigantic fish and animals seemed to form strange conjunctions. The raft took a sudden turn, whirled round, entered another tunnel this time illuminated in a most singular manner. The roof was formed of porous stalactite, through which a moonlight vapour appeared to pass, casting its brilliant light upon our gaunt and haggard figures. The light increased as we advanced, while the roof ascended, until at last we were once more in a kind of water cavern the lofty dome of which disappeared in a luminous cloud. A rugged cavern of small extent appeared to offer a halting place to our weary bodies. My uncle and the guide moved as men in a dream. I was afraid to waken them, knowing the danger of such a sudden start. I seated myself beside them to watch. As I did so, I became aware of something moving in the distance, which at once fascinated my eyes. It was floating, apparently, upon the surface of the water, advancing by means of what at first appeared to be a paddle. I looked with glaring eyes. One glance told me that it was something monstrous. But what? 
It was the great shark crocodile of the early writers on geology. About the size of an ordinary whale, with hideous jaws and two gigantic eyes, it advanced. Its eyes fixed on me with terrible sternness. Some indefinite warning told me that it had marked me for its own. I attempted to rise, to escape, no matter where, but my knees shook under me, my limbs trembled violently, I almost lost my senses, and still the mighty monster advanced. My uncle and the guide made no effort to save themselves. With a strange noise, like none other I had ever heard, the beast came on. His jaws were at least seven feet apart, and his distended mouth looked large enough to have swallowed a boat full of men. We were about ten feet distant when I discovered that much of its body resembled that of a crocodile. His mouth was that wholly of a shark. His twofold nature now became apparent. To snatch us up as a mouthful, it was necessary for him to turn on his back, which motion necessarily caused his legs to kick up helplessly in the air. I actually laughed, even in the very jaws of death. But the next minute, with a wild cry, I darted away into the interior of the cave, leaving my unhappy comrades to their fate. This cavern was deep and dreary. After about a hundred yards, I paused and looked around. The whole floor, composed of sand and malachite, was strewn with bones, freshly gnawed bones of reptiles and fish with a mixture of mammalia. My very soul grew sick as my body shuddered with horror. I had truly, according to the old proverb, fallen out of the frying pan and into the fire. Some beast larger and more ferocious even than the shark crocodile inhabited this den. What could I do? The mouth of the cave was guarded by one ferocious monster. The interior was inhabited by something too hideous to contemplate. Flight was impossible. Only one resource remained, and that was to find some small hiding place to which the fearful denizens of the cavern could not penetrate. I gazed wildly around, and at last, discovered a fissure in the rock, to which I rushed in the hope of recovering my scattered senses. Crouching down, I waited, shivering as in an ague fit. No man is brave in presence of an earthquake, or a bursting boiler, or an exploding torpedo. I could not be expected to feel much courage in presence of the fearful fate that appeared to await me. An hour passed. I heard all the time strange rumblings outside the cave. It was impossible for me to pause to inquire. 
my own wretched existence was all I could think of. Suddenly, a groaning, as of fifty bears in a fight, fell upon my ears. Hisses, spitting, moaning, hideous to hear. And then I saw. Never were ages to pass over my head, shall I forget the horrible apparition. It was the ape Giggins. Fourteen feet high, covered with coarse hair of a blackish brown, the hair on the arms, from the shoulder to the elbow joint, pointing downwards, while that from the wrist to the elbow pointed upwards. It advanced. Its arms were as long as its body, while its legs were prodigious. It had thick, long, and sharply pointed teeth, like a mammoth saw. It struck its breast as it came on smelling and sniffing, reminding me of the stories we read in our early childhood of giants who ate the flesh of men and little boys. Suddenly, it stopped. My heart beat wildly, for I was conscious that, somehow or other, the fearful monster had smelled me out and was peering about his hideous eyes to try and discover my whereabouts. My reading, which as a rule is a blessing, but which on this occasion seemed momentarily to prove a curse, told me the real truth. It was the ape Gigan, the antediluvian gorilla. Yes, this awful monster, confined by good fortune to the interior of the earth, was the progenitor of the hideous monster of Africa. He glared wildly about, seeking something, doubtless myself. I gave myself up for lost. No hope of safety or escape seemed to remain. At this moment, just as my eyes appeared to close in death, there came a strange noise from the entrance of the cave, and turning, the gorilla evidently recognised some enemy more worthy of his prodigious size and strength. It was the huge shark crocodile, which perhaps having disposed of my friends, was coming in search of further prey. The gorilla placed himself on the defensive, and clutching a bone some seven or eight feet in length, a perfect club, aimed a deadly blow at the hideous beast, which reared upwards and fell with all its weight upon its adversary. A terrible combat, the details of which it is impossible to give now ensued. The struggle was awful and ferocious. I, however, did not wait to witness the result. Regarding myself as the object of contention, I determined to remove from the presence of the victor. I slid down my hiding place, reached the ground, and gliding against the wall, strove to gain the open mouth of the cavern. But I had not taken many steps when the fearful clamour ceased, to be followed by a mumbling and groaning 
which appeared to be indicative of victory. I looked back and saw the huge ape coming after me with glaring eyes, with dilated nostrils that gave forth two columns of vapour. I could feel his hot and fetid breath on my neck, and with a horrid jump, awoke from my nightmare sleep. Yes, it was all a dream. I was still on the raft with my uncle and the guide. The relief was not instantaneous, for under the influence of the hideous nightmare, my senses had become numbed. After a while, however, my feelings were tranquilized. The first of my perceptions which returned in full force was that of hearing. I listened with acute and attentive ears. All was still as death. All I comprehended was silence. To the roaring of the waters, which had filled the gallery with awful reverberations, succeeded perfect peace. After some little time, my uncle spoke in a low and scarcely audible tone. Harry boy, where are you? I am here, was my faintest rejoinder. Well, don't you see what has happened? We are going upwards. My dear uncle, what can you mean? was my half-delirious reply. Yes, I tell you, we are ascending rapidly. Our downward journey is quite checked. I held out my hand, and, after some little difficulty, succeeded in touching the wall. My hand was in an instant covered with blood. Skin was torn from the flesh. We were ascending with extraordinary rapidity. The torch, the torch, cried the professor wildly. It must be lighted. Hans, the guide, after many vain efforts, at last succeeded in lighting it, and the flame, having now nothing to prevent it burning, shed a tolerably clear light. We were enabled to form an appropriate idea of the truth. It is just as I thought, said my uncle, after a moment or two of silent attention. We are in a narrow well, about four fathoms square. The water of the great inland sea, having reached the bottom of the gulf, are now forcing themselves up the mighty shaft. As a natural consequence, we are being cast upon the summit of the waters. That I can see, was my lugubrious reply. But where will this shaft end, and to what fall are we likely to be exposed? Of that I am as ignorant as yourself. All I know is that we should be prepared for the worst. We are going up at a fearfully rapid rate. As far as I can judge, we are ascending at a rate of two fathoms a second, of a hundred and twenty fathoms a minute, or rather more than three and a half leagues an hour. At this rate, 
our fate will soon be a matter of certainty. No doubt of it, was my reply. The great concern I have now, however, is to know whether this shaft has any issue. It may end in a granite roof, in which case we shall be suffocated by compressed air or dashed to atoms against the top. I fancy, already, that the air is beginning to close and condense. I have a difficulty in breathing. This might be fancy, or it might be the effect of our rapid motion, but I certainly felt a great oppression of the chest. Henry, said the professor, I do believe that the situation is to a certain extent desperate. There remain, however, many chances of ultimate safety, and I have, in my own mind, been resolving them over. During our heavy but agitated sleep, I have come to this logical conclusion. Whereas we may at any moment perish, so at any moment we may be saved. We need, therefore, prepare ourselves for whatever may turn up in the great chapter of accidents. But what would you have us do? I cried. Are we not utterly helpless? No. While there is life, there is hope. At all events, there is one thing we can do. Eat, and thus obtain strength to face victory or death. As he spoke, I looked at my uncle with a haggard glance. I had put off the fatal communication as long as possible. It was now forced upon me, and I must tell him the truth. Still I hesitated. Eat, I said, in a deprecating tone, as if there were no hurry. Yes, and at once. I feel like a starving prisoner, he said, rubbing his yellow and shivering hands together. And, turning round to the guide, he spoke some hearty, cheering words, as I judged from his tone, in Danish. Hans shook his head in a terribly significant manner. I tried to look unconcerted. What? cried the professor. You do not mean to say that all our provisions are lost. Yes, was my lowly spoken reply, as I held out something in my hand. This morsel of dried meat is all that remains for us three. My uncle gazed at me, as if he could not fully appreciate the meaning of my words. The blow seemed to stun him by its severity. I allowed him to reflect for some moments. Well, said I, after a short pause, what do you think now? Is there any chance of our escaping from our horrible subterranean dangers? Are we not doomed to perish in the great hollows of the centre of the earth? But my pertinent question brought no answer. My uncle either heard me not, or appeared not to do so. 
and in this way, a whole hour passed. Neither of us cared to speak. For myself, I began to feel the most fearful and devouring hunger. My companions, doubtless, felt the same. But neither of them would touch the wretched morsel of meat that remained. It lay there, a last remnant of all our great preparations for the mad and senseless journey. I looked back with wonderment to my own folly. Fully was I aware that, despite his enthusiasm and the ever-to-be-hated scroll of Saknasem, my uncle should never have started his perilous voyage. What memories of the happy past, what provisions of the horrible future, now filled my brain.